Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Or at least Karen and I are. <laughs> Magic of virtual recording. Today, our guest is Sierra King. Sierra is an Atlanta-based artist, photographer, and archivist. Her creative and arts administration work is dedicated to documenting, preserving, and archiving the work of Black women artists. Sierra holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in art from Valdosta State University. She is also currently the community manager for Tila Studios, a visual arts incubator for Black women artists. In late August this year of 2020, Sierra will be making her curatorial debut, here, There, Everywhere, a multidimensional portrait of the journey towards Black futurity that Black women across the African diaspora have been pursuing in the name of freedom. And we are so excited to talk to Sierra about her work building archives for Black women artists, personal archives, and her upcoming exhibition. Is there anything you'd like to add in the introduction or anything else you'd like listeners to know about you? No, that was pretty spot on. I like art and collecting things and like books and vinyls. And somehow I kind of made my way into archiving. Can you tell us a little bit more about that getting into archiving and kind of like this area of, of interest in particular? Yeah, so I've always been interested in art and history and photography. Um, when I was in school, that was like my primary focus as a portrait and documentary photographer. And so I've really always been doing it all along. So making portraits of people, going to their studios, following people at their exhibitions and cataloging their work, like just like the back end of being a photographer, like metadata and making sure that files are in the correct places and um, the database outside of like what you're providing people. So it's something that like I've I realized I was always doing and then to actually like apply it to, oh, this is a job profession that people do in real life. <laughs> you can get paid for it. Didn't kind of click until like two years ago. But when I came back up, from Valdosta um, to Atlanta, I was like, I want to be an artist. I'm going to be a full-time artist. I'm not going to like get a corporate job or fall into the ideal that like I have to be just a, another like cog in the machine, I guess. And so I just like went full speed ahead and like what, trying to figure out like what is an artist and like how do they actually make a living off of their work. And people kind of like steered me into the, I guess, the way of making like making photography my business. Like they knew that I loved doing photography, though, so they were like, "Hey, come take my family portraits, or come shoot my child, or like I want pictures of my dog." And I'm like, "That doesn't really like interest me. I don't want to do that." And so you have to make that really clear. And so I kind of like I put my camera down, not in and didn't want to really do like the business part of it and that kind of led me to okay well I know my camera gets me into places so how else can I get into like certain places 
without having to pay for it, basically. So uh, that went to like me freelancing, as still as a photographer, freelancing, doing social media and digital marketing, which allowed me to do cool things like shoot One Music Fest or do social media for One Music Festival, volunteer and shoot photographs for Atlanta Film Festival, do like parties and things like music. And, and I, I love music, so really that was like my only like <laughs> like thing that I wanted to like kind of get into so I was like how do I get into all these music things without having to pay for it but also being paid at the same time <laughs> so that was like my motive to do that and eventually that like stopped paying like what it need to needed to at the time so I was like okay maybe I do have to get a job and so I got a couple jobs but I also got fired from all of those so <laughs> it was like uh, do I really like like doing jobs? It was like that the question of like, am I supposed to be in these fields that I'm trying to get into, or am I just not fit for like having a traditional job in that sense? And in between all of that, I was also trying to figure out, still trying to figure out who I was as an artist. I didn't really have like a body of work coming out of school, so I was like, what? what am I shooting or what am I going after to kind of build this work for myself um, that doesn't necessarily scream people can hire me as like a family photographer. I still wanted to go after being an exhibiting artist to be in museums and institutions and, and different fairs and things like that. So that was always like the main goal. But doing the freelancing also gave me more insight about how to just like move in Atlanta and how to like make connections uh, with people and how little that like black women artists knew of how to actually do that. Um, and so I applied that to arts administration when I started working with Tila. I was like, here, this is like the blueprint of like what I've done. Ask yourself like, who do you know? What do you want to do? And where do you want to go? And once you figure out those three questions, then it's a matter of how. And whether that how is you teaching, whether that how is you doing social media or just using a different skill set to kind of get you into that door like I was doing for myself. Um, and then you'll be able to position your work or your art in front of them because you didn't have to either you didn't have to pay or you're already having a conversation with them. Right. And so in refining that with arts administration, I it just can't became like glaringly apparent that black women artists either were they they knew how to do those things but either they didn't have the time or they didn't have the money to like just fully jump into like artist career like that and so with Tila I it was like my goal to like not only help them figure out that process for them but how do you like accelerate your career to a point that you're not necessarily straining your work or straining your, the process of your work to be paid for it so you're still leaving room for yourself to create rather than making art your business right same thing that like people wanted me to do they wanted me to make my art my business and that doesn't really work when you're when you're like trying to figure out like what are you actually trying to say and then in the middle of all of that, like let's fast forward to 2017, my uncle, John Stevens, who was also a photographer and who I mentored under before I went to college, he went to the Gordon Parks Foundation Gala in New York and Kathleen Cleaver was there. 
they knew nothing of each other. They were talking about movies and they had from there, they realized that they were like neighbors. Um, she's here in Atlanta and she was teaching at Emory University as a professor at law. And so basically like they lived down the street from each other. If you think of that in like Atlanta terms. <laughs> and that was like, it was one of those like synchronicity moments where like that would have never happened if he wasn't there. And so a couple months down the line, Kathleen had called her, Miss Cleaver called my uncle and he was like, hey, I have uh, someone visiting and she's talking about photographs and I know you're a photographer, so this might be interesting for you. And of course he said, yes, why not go to Kathleen's <laughs> Cleaver's house to talk about photographs? I'm a photographer, I like photographs, we can make this conversation happen. And so when he got there, Lee Rayford, who is a professor at Berkeley University in California, she was the person that was visiting Kathleen to talk about her archive. And so Kathleen had up to maybe like, we started saying like 2,000 photographs in her home across like decades from like her mother's photographs, her aunt's photographs, and all the photographs that she had been taking just across her life span dealing with the Black Panther movement um, and then also her just being a mother and growing up as a mother and being married to Eldridge and everything that happened during the 1960s through the 70s and so they were like we want to start this project of building her archive and they asked my uncle do you know anybody who is organized and has good handwriting those were the only like requirements and so he was like yeah my uh my niece who's also a photographer is pretty good at both of those things and so that is kind of like a roundabout of how all of that happened <laughs> that's such an interesting journey i thanks for sharing that so out of this relationship was born from what I understand, the project Build Your Archive? Yeah, from there, from like June 2017, I was able to just be in her home and archive her photographs and, and document that process and, and talk with her about things that were happening in the photographs and just the stories like across the decades and like not only like dealing with the Black Panther movement, but it was also just an insight into like who she was as a woman and a mother and an aunt and a grandparent. Like it was one of those things was like, I know that like history is happening and I'm like in this actual moment, but when, when you get to a point where like you are in the presence of someone that has been, you've seen widely in publications and the media and your textbooks and your history and you're like, kind of like starstruck about like why that was happening I'm like so every time I had to like bring myself down back to earth and like say like she's a person she's a mother she is someone who loves movies and like just humanizing her was really like I don't want to say humbling but it was just like a moment of like peace it's like just being able to have that relationship with her and sitting in in her home and doing that for her so it kind of clicked to me as well as like, well, my grandparents also have an archive. My parents also have an archive. My grandparents on my dad's side also have an archive and like the photos that they keep in their home. So what are we actually doing with those? And like, I can like do, I can be that person to take charge of that information and 
and just do the same that I had been given the opportunity and the privilege to do for Catherine Cleaver, which is a big responsibility that I kind of put on myself <laughs> because like, just like, oh, I want to be the archivist for my family. And you realize that like, there's like 500 different people in your family and like all of these different sources and primary things. So it became bigger than what I like <laughs> initially thought it was, but that's usually how um, things happen. And then it also, at the same time, kind of overlapped with the work that I was doing as an arts administrator at TILA because we kind of rooted our work that in that 4% of Black artists, including Black women artists, are represented in museum and gallery spaces. And we were, like, grappling with the fact of, like, why is this number so low and what can we do about it? And so that was, like, the problem solution that we were trying to kind of uh, eradicate um, as arts administrators for Black women artists. And for me, I was like, this isn't a capitalism politics aside. Like, I I understand that funding is important for, for Black women artists, and I understand that money is something that we have to use as a tool. But what is it that Black women artists are not doing to prepare them for their work to be acquired? Like, are they... Are their materials not up to par? Do they not have their inventory in in like perfect shape? Uh, what are they uh, documenting as far as like their processes, as far as like how they make the work? Are they shooting, are they getting themselves documented while they're going to these exhibitions um, and things? Are the conversations that they're having with other artists and just their community, are those also being like uh, documented and cataloged and things like that? And so those are the type of questions that were like driving me to kind of understand like why aren't this, why isn't that percentage greater than that 4%? And so that's kind of like where the project kind of went as far as the artist side of it. And then also, I guess that kind of led me to kind of think about, well, what other archives have been built by, for Black women artists, including like Arthurs and, and actresses and and all those that fall other than the like visual artists. Um, so one of the archives that I was looking at was Octavia Butler's. And in 2008, it was acquired by Huntington Library um, in California. And the archive is uh, Natalie Russell. She was the assistant curator of literary collections um, at the time. And as I was reading, it was just like, there was literally like 8,000 items that she had to like pour over and assess and organize. And I was like, that was like mind blowing to me. Like somebody just like dropped 8,000 things of stuff on your doorstep and you have to like put it into these like little boxes and, and catalogs if it hasn't done, been done already. And so I was like, that is a definitely like overwhelming responsibility and kind of, it kind of parallel to what I was doing with Kathleen as well. Like you're telling me I have to like get through 2000 photos in this span of time <laughs> when there's just so much that like you have to like think about. And so on that side, I was like, I guess us as arch archivists and librarians, how do we like position ourselves or educate the community in just making our jobs easier. I'm always thinking, well, how can we like make other people's jobs easier and not necessarily like throwing a like an archive of something of 8,000 to 10,000 objects onto a person's doorstep. Uh, rather, it's like, I guess also I want to think about like, 
it took her three years to get through that information. So in those three years, it wasn't accessible to the public. And so during that processing, like on stage, and so if it had been, like, let's think about going into the past. If Octavia had an archivist with her while she was making her work and they were doing all the cataloging, they were doing all the inventory and they were doing all the boxing and assessment while she was making all these things, how much time would that have cut off on Natalie's like job to say like, oh, I can get this done in six months and we can like move this into into public information. Like, I think that is like something that I'm always thinking about. How can you accelerate the information into the public at a faster rate just so that they can have like access, they can access the information and be, be able to enjoy it rather than like it taking like three to six years for something to be processed. Yeah, I think that's so interesting too, because when you're working with the you know, artists, creators, you know, the diff- writers, the different people that you're working with, also they get so much more say in how that processing will eventually happen because, you know, the story you're telling about Octavia Butler is at that point, like it, that is a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of that archivist. And then um, the person whose materials they are doesn't get a say in what goes in there or how they're arranged or anything. So, yeah, unless yeah. Live like a leave like a directive, I'm sure that like, Octavia left some type of like this is what I want uh, done but I haven't organized it (laughs) yeah and not everybody would know to do that or you know like that education work you're doing is very interesting yeah yeah I was gonna add like the education work sounds really fascinating and I I think it also to me I, I think it also considers like who is the archive for right like is it for maybe outside audiences or is it important to like what kind of care are you putting into it so that's yeah that sounds really important and then also i was uh i guess the arts administration side of it and 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 thinking about that education portion i was reading edith t martin's story she was uh (laughs) she was organizing a show of black women artists so like it's total uh like parallel to what i'm doing now she was organizing a show of black women artists but it unfortunately didn't get to be mounted but during her time as i'm trying to curate that show and to realize it she was collecting information from the artists as we do as curators like you get the statements the bios um the processes of of the work and just making sure that you understand all of the artists work and things like that and the, also the correspondence between like her and the artists and their conversations. And so that became like a, a small mini archive for that particular like project that she was working on. And since the exhibition did not happen, she had in her mind, well, these materials deserve some type of place to live, right? Like it's still an important part of like American art and being in that canon, like this exhibition should have happened. And for it to not be realized, I think that she kind of thought that maybe putting the, those materials in the archive, I guess, deserved more investigation about why it wasn't realized, you know? And to say that it specifically went to the archives of American art, right? And so she didn't send it to an African-American museum. She didn't send it to a local museum or a community archive or even the library that she was working with at the time. She sent it to the archives of American art. Rebecca talks about it in Off the Wall in that essay is like, 
her making that like direct decision about sending it to that particular archives was was not only solidifying the importance of black women in art, but also the importance of like the investigation part of why black women are being currently constantly denied positions in that canon. So again, going back to that 4% of black women being represented in museums and exhibitions. I think a lot of the times when we hear archives, we think of institutional archives and you know, your project build your archive is is a very explicitly personal archives project as you've, you've just talked about as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you're defining um, what is archival or or what are archives? Let's let's go back to my childhood. My first art gallery and first archive that I ever walked into was my grandmother's living room. And to say that is was like you walk into a room and or you walk into the living room coming from the front door and it's just filled with photographs, floor to ceiling, on the wall, on shelves, in different frames, falling off the wall. Photos were being replaced and uh, a new photo of yourself could be put up there every year. And so every single time that you went to her house, she would just look like be enamored by those photographs and like wondering like oh that was little me but can you like replace it with the with what I look like now and she'd be like yeah sure we can switch it out and so she was she almost became like a curator for our own history in our family in that in that small room and so when I think about archives I think about what do people collect what do things do they have in their homes what do they have on their dresser when you walk into their room what photos are on the on their grandmother's living room walls I've also challenged myself to also think about it, I guess, when I get some more headspace after the exhibition, to also think about it outside of the home. What do archives look like outside of the home for people who are without a home? Uh, what does that look like? What are the things that they carry? And like, how does that become the, their own particular personal archive for themselves? And what story uh, do those things tell about themselves? And so I think when I think about archives, it's just the things that you choose to carry with you and the responsibility of carrying those things is just like telling the most full and honest story of your life. So that's what I think about, <laughs> I think about archives. I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate, you know, you really tying like the familiar and home and art and archives together because often I don't know, archives feel like almost kind of like very depersonalized and like maybe sterile and kind of uncomfortable. And if we see like absences or silences or erasures, like, no, like like you said, like they're in our home, it's everywhere. And like, these are our ways of knowing and remembering. And so, yeah, thank you so much. For, I really like that. Yeah, I like, like I said, the, that was my first like, art gallery and like archive that I walked into. So when I was able to, um, we actually visited uh, Spellman's archive with Kathleen uh, one of the days. Um, and so when I visited Spellman's archive, although it was like grand and it had like the moving shelves and the digital things and all the boxes and the books and things like that. And I was like, this doesn't feel like home. It doesn't feel, it, it doesn't, it was cold because you have to have photos like 
photos and the things have to be cold. So, <laughs> so it was like, that was like something like being in that environment and having that contrast of like both. Spelman has a, a pretty small archive. So just as big as like maybe uh, like two rooms put together. Um, and so it's probably one of the smaller archives that, and I know Holly over there, when I said, when I speak to Holly, I'll have to tell her it's, it's, it's still very small, but it's still also very institutional. So I think starting in the community archive or starting in an archive like Kathleen, it afforded me, I think the privilege that I had was like coming from Kathleen's archive was that it it was in a place of home and it did have that like familial sense. And I didn't have the rules and the, and the, the like stipulations um, that maybe an institutional archive came. Yeah, so I haven't had the, like, there's, like, two different privileges, right? So I haven't had the privilege of working a, in an institutional archive. I've visited them, but I haven't, I don't, I don't come from that <laughs> training, so to speak. So, yeah, my, my whole ethos is, like, everything is at home, and, like, you can do it in your, in your house, in your home, with your family. It's just about making time for it. So we also want to talk to you about your upcoming exhibition, although by the time this goes out, it might be your ongoing exhibition, <laughs> just so our listeners know, we're recording a bit in advance, which is called Here, There, Everywhere, and I'll read a quote from the description about it to give people some context. It's, it's a multidimensional portrait of the journey towards Black futurity that Black women across the African diaspora have been pursuing individually and collectively in the name of freedom. Uh, so do you want to give us a bit of like a overview of the exhibition for people? Yeah, I think this exhibition is very timely. Like I was speaking about in the beginning, like as long as I'm doing something uh, to go towards like the future that I want to create for myself, then we're going to be all right. Like, it's going to be okay. And so, but I think the deeper part of it, as far as like a collective and a community, it's a, a retrospective of what Black women have always been doing across like decades. Like there have been researchers and curators like Tina Camp and Sadia Hartman doing this work before me, right? Um, and so it's very much so a way that Black women cultivate themselves, their community, and then they kind of move into the space of like legacy. Um, so you see Black women going after their dreams, going after visions and distant mirages of like what other people can't see. And usually that like deems them as like disruptors and being radical and just having like this crazy sense of like, something is about to happen. I don't know what, but it's happening. And for me, for it to happen, I have to do these things, right? And sometimes we can't necessarily explain it. Like people see me doing all these things. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, it, it, it's gonna make sense. It's gonna make sense because I have this like vision of what, what the future looks like. And I can't really explain that to you right now. And it, I know like me going to New York or me flying off to become a dancer or like going to a going to like a, a retreat in the desert somewhere, that doesn't really make sense right now. Like. COVID, pre-COVID life, but <laughs> but it doesn't really make sense right now, but I promise you I'm doing this like for the betterment of not only my future, but for the pe people's future after me, right? Um, and so I think 
it's just that portrait of like black men just having like that determination and, and perseverance for themselves. Can you talk a little bit about what this exhibition um, and black futurity mean for you? Yeah, I think this exhibition was an opportunity for me to put into words what that was. So like, it was one of the th- those things that like, I've always been doing. So like, I'm always thinking about the future. I'm always thinking about what's next. I'm always thinking about like the vision that I have for my life and like the vision that I have for like my children's life. Like I have a joke that like I'm building my daughter's library. So I'm buying all these books, but she's not even here yet. So (laughs) it's like one of those things. And so, but when I was reading Tina Kemp, listening to images, I picked up that book in one of my research halls, I like to call them. I spent like $60 on Duke, Duke's Press website <laughs> for one time. And that was one of the books I picked up. Tina Kemp, she says in her book, Listening to Images, what does it mean for Black feminists to think in the grammar of futurity? And that was like, you know, when like you're thinking about a math problem and you, and you like read something and it like just makes sense. You're like, that makes sense. And so um, me, like, just loving words and loving language, being able to put what I've been doing as an artist and what Black women have been doing into context and have substance to that um, just made sense. So, like, the actions that we, like, presently commit to uh, will inform a future that must happen. That's, like, as simply to put it. But I love when she says, it moves beyond the future of perfect tense of that which will have have happened prior to a reference point in the future. It strives for the tense of possibility that grammarians refer to as the future real condition or that which will have had to happen. The grammar of Black feminist futurity is a performance of a future that hasn't yet happened but must. Like, it's so interesting because... Often when I think of archives, it's quite stuck in history in the past. And so to bring that together with like Black futurity, I think like that tense of possibility that you mentioned and that Tina Camp mentioned is, yeah, like that's very beautiful. Yeah, and her, like, I haven't even, like, gotten through the book. I've just, like, skimmed pieces of it. But it's, like, one of those things where you just, like, read a passage and you're like, wow like this makes sense this makes a lot of sense to like what we've already been doing and and I'm really grateful for her words to be able to not only apply that to like myself as an artist and a practitioner but to be able to like when I'm having these conversations with the artists and I and I'm like telling them the pretense of like the research that I've been doing and explaining the words um that Tina Camps has provided they're like it clicks for them too it's like you know that that makes a lot of sense and so to see that process and like those light bulbs go off in their head has also been like pretty like beautiful as well do you want to talk about what the process has been like for curating this exhibition yeah it has been eye-opening like I said I wanted to I've been to a lot of exhibitions I've like around Atlanta um and in different states and just being able to like step into this role of like being a curator and having like a uh, a say on like what exactly you're trying to like have a conversation about that's really all it is it's like I want to talk about this thing and I think these artists and what they're making is an entry point into that conversation um and so when stepping outside the role as an observer I wanted to give that substance to the to the work 
And so giving language to the exhibition, giving language to how the work was being in conversation with, with each other was very important to me because I hadn't critically thought about why I like the, the type of work that I like or why am I drawn to the type of work that I'm drawn to or why do uh, these particular artists and their work speak to me, um, not only as an arts administrator, but as an artist myself. And so to be able to put that into context as far as in here and there everywhere, I think that was the my main focus in providing language to that. And I really enjoyed just the, re- like, I really just enjoyed the research part of it. Um, and I'm, I still am just like reading and, and looking at things and looking at videos and, and being able, I think, being able to provide context and language to something that you've been doing like your entire life has been like the most gratifying. And then also I get to talk with a lot of artists all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. About the artists like looking at the site for or the stuff you sent us for the exhibition, it was very cool, like the range of mediums that people work in and the different kinds of stuff people are doing. And I love, I mean, there's a lot of them and they're, they all have incredible stories, so we can't go into everything probably, but if you wanted to share a little bit about like some of those artists, so, you know, a couple of examples. When I had chose these artists, um, I had already been like, I'm just constantly thinking about black women artists all the time. Like I joke, there's like a database in my head of just black women artists that is just continually going. And I'm like, where are they at? What are they doing? How can I help help them um, locally and nationally? So when I was when I chose these artists, I'm also big on craftsmanship and technique. And so understanding that they're at a point in their career that they also care about craftsmanship and technique. It wasn't just the work wasn't just being made just for it to be pretty, but you're like accelerating your practice. You're making sure that you're staying on top of like different processes processes and experimenting with things. Like I'm interested in that. And so for me to be able to see them grow and expand over the times that I've like interacted with them across these like three, four years. So you can almost say that I've been like curating this exhibition for like three years. I'm just now realizing it. <laughs> and so, specifically for uh, Ebony Blanding's work, Talk to Plants. I was actually the uh, still photographer on set for that. Um, It's a film about her aunt um, that was not, I don't want to say suffering from dementia, but she was experiencing dementia. And so it's about mental health and how uh, we perceive mental health and how that like affects families, but more so the portrait of her aunt and how that like, it was not a, it wasn't something negative, but it put her on in a space where she could think about things uh, differently. So talking to plants and like interacting with things like that and like just something otherworldly than us like regular people could experience. And so it's, that was like something really beautiful. And I, um, like I said, I did the, the behind the scenes photographs for that. And I also did some video portraits of Ebony. So that's kind of like a cool story behind there is that like I I was archiving her in real time without realizing that. And so for her to be able to have that and give that to her has always been like really special to me. And then Jasmine Nicole Williams, Everything I Am, (laughs) that is a, I'm a Virgo. I'm also a narcissist. So that is also a portrait of myself, of me, Jasmine, and our best friend, Dartricia. But 
there's a story there too. So um, me, Jasmine, and Dartresia, we have all lived in uh, the same like area in Atlanta or outside of Atlanta, going to high school and things like that. But we didn't realize until in our like grown years in the last three years that uh we all lived that close to each other but we didn't forge this like friendship relationship until now and so we spent the last two years just becoming friends and learning each other and going to dinners and cooking for each other and like having just communion and fellowship buying books with each other and like it became this thing that like the people around us was like if you see Dartricia you'll see Sierra or if you see Jasmine you'll see Dartricia or if you see you'll see Jasmine and so I'm looking at it outside of myself that relationship and how we cultivated it was something really beautiful and for Jasmine to like honor that in her work was not only like something like that like kind of hit home for me but was like this is like something greater and like tells a bigger story of how black women create their own communities and how they like just continue to um, support each other and how to cultivate that just by simple things like friends dinner that's something that we like did every month pre-covid miss friends dinner so much so much <laughs> and moandisha gator i came across her because we worked with her as a caterer with tila studios but i always knew that she wanted to work in the space as an artist and so I reached out to her and gave her the, not the idea, she positioned to me. She said one day she was speaking to me and she was like, I'm a culinary artist. That's what I do. And so when me and Jasmine were researching, we were like, we want Disha to cater it. But I was like, no, no, I think I think she could be more involved than just being the caterer. Like Disha can be an artist. She can install an installation of, of food like you can put an installation in the middle of the gallery and like it be food and so that is like the whole idea around that is like how black women cook for each other and how it's being prepared and what goes into that level of preparation and like in showing that in that particular installation and Disha has some really great ideas of, about how she wants to present that work and, and collaborating with other artists so that's been pretty cool to see just her bloom into that and like be able to like take off the like chef's hat and like really dive into like who she wants to be as an artist. And then Chandler Stevens, she is doing uh, patterns and pathways. And so she has like this signature mark that is kind of like an arc and it has either three to four rings. And I wanted to push that further and push her further to kind of do a floor to wall mural. So the space is pretty big. So I had the idea of throughout the three different sections here, there, everywhere, you would not only be walking through the exhibition, but you would be guided by Chandler's patterns and pathways on the floor. And so the three lines or the four lines would be all throughout the floor, breaking and, and going in different directions and kind of guiding you in throughout the exhibition. But when, once you get to the end, you'll actually see the full arc on the wall to have it come to that completion. And so I think those are all three of the sections really here, there, and everywhere. And so thinking about the artist and just pushing them into doing different things with the work, whether that's Disha doing something with food or Chandler installing throughout the exhibition and being like something that guided you, or Ebony 
her talk to plants is going to be a projected film, but bringing the plants and bringing the infirmia back into the physical space. So things that we used on set will actually be like in the space and for people to interact with. And that's something that like I like hold dear to my heart as like a, a archivist and how, what I implement in my practice is like just bringing things back into the physical space for people to interact with it and like going back to the like that accessibility point. So yeah, I, I'm really excited about these artists and like what they're doing and like how the work can be experienced. Sounds incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and that's only like a third of the artists. So. There's, them. There's 12. <laughs> With the exhibition proposal you sent us, it's written in the second person. So like, I'll read a sentence so people can kind of imagine. Here you have given yourself permission to be your whole selves and refuse to be governed. So with that use of you, who's the audience that you're thinking of for the exhibition? And um, like, why why them? And like, what are you hoping that that you will, will get from it? Or? I am always, 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 always thinking about the Black woman. And so when I use you, I'm specifically speaking to her. And so it is like this intimate conversation that I'm always having with, with her. And when I say her, the you can use her as like the general, uh, you can almost replace it in a sense as like how people use they um, to whereas I'm, I'm speaking to a multitude of, of hers. Um, and so this also kind of brings me back into my own practice as an artist. So like as a photographer, when I am photographing them, not only do I want them to see themselves, I'm kind of also mirroring who I am. And so you'll see a lot of my own self-portraits look like the ones that I've taken of, of women as well. And so they're like mirrors of each other and like in conversation with each other in that sense. And so, and that kind of kind of like spills over into my writing, right? And so it, when I'm speaking and I'm writing and I say her or I say they, I'm speaking to the black woman. And, and while other people can experience it and while other people can like have their own gaze and their own critiques about it, it's not really for them. I'm always centering the black woman. Thank you. Wow. So when did you start working on the exhibition? And also, you know, with current events, like how has COVID affected it? Like you, you mentioned physical spaces and with programming as well, like how is that going to work with, you know, our current moment? Yeah, I, like I said, I've been realizing this exhibition for like the last three years of my life, right? <laughs> so I've been working with these artists, I've been coming into my own practice and, and trying to figure out words that like fit into it. And finally, this opportunity is here, right? And so uh, Mint Gallery, uh, they had an open call for proposals, whether you're an artist, a curator, or just an organization that wanted to showcase a body of work. And I just wanted to stop making like excuses for myself not submitting something just because I didn't have a body of work for myself. Like I, I know I'm still not in the place to like, showcase the work that I want to as as an artist but how can I use my platform and what I've been doing to kind of just bring bring women with me right and so 
I have all this knowledge of all these black women in my head. I've added some type of research to it, right? To ongoing research that is still happening. And so it was a more of a point of like, why not? Right. And so re- really May was like a time of like research and just putting everything together. Like you saw in the proposal and like just having discussions with um, Dartricia about how exactly I wanted to kind of realize this. And then also it was something that, I realized I couldn't, for lack of better words, half-ass it. Like, I just had to, like, put everything in. I had to, like, turn on the Virgo and, like, just, you saw the proposal. It was pretty, like, succinct. And so um, I had to, like, just think through everything that could be a possibility for it and, uh, and give myself space to that for that. And I think that was, like, probably the best thing that I've, I've ever done is to give myself room to imagine what that would be, whether it would be realized in this time or not. And how COVID has affected it was that like, I was like, all right, if it doesn't get accepted, then I can still do it somewhere else. Or I could do like a virtual type of thing. I don't really want to do a virtual type of thing, but <laughs> I could, uh, that could have been an option. But then it got accepted. And then I was like, well, I guess we're here. I guess we're here now. So, so that like even while we, I had those like, I had like the weeks of programming. Like I thought about programming and then how that would fit into that like the exhibition schedule. I don't think that is actually going to be able to be realized like I wanted to, um, just because Georgia has been one of the most irresponsible states <laughs> responding to COVID, to say lightly. Our mayor kind of reopened the city uh and then she closed it again and so we're back to like phase one um and so we had another conversation me and the executive director they put up the exhibition schedule but we wanted to do time visits and so even now they're saying like with within the restriction of phase one we're gonna have to go back to can we even have the exhibition again and so that's probably I'm we'll figure that out next week (laughs) but yeah so just taking it like one day at a time but still I'm still like pressing the artists to get their materials in checking in on them how in progress works are going and so just going towards it like the same thing I'm talking about in the in the exhibition is like still going with those like actions and like that you know something must happen like this exhibition must happen because I'm already doing these things, right? And so whether the, it's in the gallery or it's it's happening in 2021 or 2022, it's, it's still going to happen. And so that is what's kind of like pushing me through, regardless of how like Georgia decides to respond to COVID. <laughs> yeah, that's really unfortunate about COVID though. I yeah. really hope like all the best and I hope everyone's like healthy and it's like I it's just like something that's like always looming over you but like I said I'm just trying to to push forward and like not you have to think about it but like at the same time it's like one of those things that like when we don't know when this will end or like if they like go back to phase three and then go back to phase one and keep like jolting us back and forth between the the opening phases based on like the economy and politics and things like that so yeah yeah Uh, fun stuff (laughs) (laughs) that's the heavy part of it (laughs) everything that i do as far as an artist a curator or arts administrator like they're all the same they're just different titles 
<laughs> what is something that you wish more folks, whether they're librarians, archivists, general community members, knew about personal archiving for Black women specifically? I am hoping that the work that I'm doing and continue to do will open up a, a broader conversation about our archiving within the community to reach out to Black women archivists to be in charge of the archives of Black women. And like no shade to Natalie Russell, she did an incredible job with Octavia's uh, archive and that exhibition was great. That happened in Huntington Library. But future me is like imagining what if a Black woman had been in, in Natalie's place at that time and how much context and experiences from a Black woman view given more substance to Octavia's experience just because of the collective memory that she already brought along with like her knowledge and her research. I think that is like pivotal, I guess, precipice thing is that yes, we're archivists and yes, we're researchers and libraries and things, but I think the, there is power in like collective memory and experience that people outside of that memory and outside of that experience don't have access to, right? And so being able to be in that position or be put in that position to do that is invaluable, just as the same as I was put in the position to archive and build uh, Kathleen Cleaver's archive from that experience. It's just, you can't put a price on that. <laughs> I hope that also this pushes archivists and librarians as well to just educate the community on that, like the, the timeliness of like, you don't have to wait for someone to excel in their career or to like get an award or to reach the highest point that they'll ever reach to build something for them. Like their, their now is important and caring for them in real time is the work. Sierra, thank you so much for, for your time and for joining us today. Uh, if folks want to reach you online, uh, where can they find you? They can find me at builderarchive.com. It's a work in progress and everything as far as like my portfolio for archiving is there. My Instagram is the 36 frame. So it's 36 spelled out and then frame. Um, and then you can also find my photography um, at Sierra Chastity, Chastity with one T. And we'll put links as well. We can be found on Twitter at organizing pod. That's organizing with a Z, not an S. Our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com and our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com where you can find links to things that we've mentioned, like all of Sierra's websites and social media, stuff like that, and transcripts to the episodes. Thanks so much once again for joining us, Sierra. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Do you hear my dog?